This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 5th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. As the GOP struggles to discover whether the Donald Trump phenomenon is a black swan event or a broader shift in its base and priorities, there is no denying that some internal reflection is in order. Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, says when parties are mere vehicles, the ideas espoused by those vehicles can change quickly and dramatically. After 2012, the Republican Party was going to do some soul-searching, do some sort of uh, outward-bound retreat and talk about what went wrong and why they couldn't capitalize on the substantial weaknesses that uh, that President Obama had. And we go through up through 2015 and 2016, and suddenly there's this uh, elephant in the room that is Donald Trump trying to uh, take over and at least with some success has taken over a, a large swath of the Republican Party. So what didn't Republicans do and and what should the lessons have been? Well, I think that they approached the lessons of 2012 with basically the attitude of we, we ran a candidate who didn't really match up with what people wanted to hear. Uh, and that they needed to expand their tent, that they needed to uh, appeal to a broader swath of Americans, not just more uh, white working class people who didn't come out in Pennsylvania and in Ohio, but also Hispanics in Florida and other key states. And I think that was the general attitude of the party. The problem is that everything that happened after 2012, I think, catered to an opinion on the part of Republican Party leadership that, that their problems were really due to a fracture within the problem within the party that was more ideological and was basically between purists on one side and pragmatists on the other and uh, that the Republican Party leadership you know views themselves as pragmatic and wanting to just kind of you know move things along understanding the limits of what they can achieve you know having the Congress uh, while the purists wanted more and more and more. The problem was that that left out a whole swath of people whose problem really with the Republican Party really wasn't so much that it was too purist or not purist enough or too pragmatic or not pragmatic enough, but that it was out of step with the priorities that they had. And Donald Trump came along and, and came, gave them a message, a message that's based in, in nostalgia and rejection of the elites uh, and basically uh, allowed them to blame a lot of things on, on culprits that uh, had not been at the center of the Republican conversation, namely immigrants, trade deals, and, uh, and foreign policy approaches that, that he viewed as being stupid, dumb, et cetera. And I think that that message ended up resonating a lot more, in part because the, the Republican Party and most of their leading members thought that the fight was between two different groups while leading out, leaving out this massive chunk of people who were willing to respond to Trump's message in part because they don't view the world through an ideological lens. So they wanted let's just get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's post-partisan, right? In a sense, it really is. It's, it's kind of saying, you know, that the parties are just vehicles for things. And in a way, it's, it's really sad because what it represents is a shift toward identity politics on the part of the Republican Party to a much greater degree where you're just supposed to be representing the views of, of people who vote for you and, and catering to their wishes, regardless of any kind of thread of principle or ideology or philosophy about the role of government as it relates to the citizen. It's always struck me that uh, Republicans, when having fights with Democrats that they think they can score points on, especially uh, congressional Democrats, 
uh, from my perspective, which of course I carry biases with me as everyone else does, but I always thought, this is the wrong fight, like almost every step of the way for the last four or eight years. Mm -hmm. Their priorities really have not matched up with uh, you know, the priorities either of, of the American people or, or of this portion of the electorate that feels like we've never really come back from the economic downturn. One of the interesting things to just look at within the way that Donald Trump won the primary, the people he won it with, is to look at you know, their levels of, of economic distress and frustration, feeling like they've been left behind while Wall Street's made a come back while Washington still has cranes all over it and, and the coasts feel like we've you know had an economic resurgence. There's a great swath of people for whom that is not true and they blame a lot of different factors on that. Globalization, trade deals, you know, technology, uh, and of course immigrants taking their jobs. And Donald Trump was able to, to cater to all of those things in part because they don't view the world through a lens of the Constitution or the sort of things that you might hear you know, a Ted Cruz talk about. And the, the end point of that being that you get to a stage where you have an independent military family from Virginia, you know, uh, uh, an educated, you know, uh, attorney immigrant uh, who is, is standing at the DNC holding up a copy of a pocket constitution, and that's the guy that the Republicans are losing out on. I mean, that should be their guy. That's who they wanted to be their guy all along. And instead, the approach that Trump has used has really limited their ability to appeal. The question really is, what does this do beyond this election? How do the American people take away? Uh, the lessons from this, you know, win or lose, whatever happens with him, there's going to be an impact on the party system going forward because the people who I think have responded to his message are not just going to disappear overnight. They're going to have an impact. The question is how big. To to what extent has this been mirrored, do you think, in the in the Democratic Party? Of course, Bernie Sanders appeals to a lot of the same demographics that, that Donald Trump has as well. And more broadly, to what extent does that reveal the disconnect that just exists within Washington, D.C. policy debates that, you know, mm -hmm. we worry about, oh, well, you know, you've got to have th this interest deduction or that, that yeah. thing. Oh, well, well, there's no moral claim that you have to this or that. But uh, it it seems like that has also become a little disconnected as well. The Democrats have been playing an identity politics game for a long time. They've basically been using uh, both racial politics and then this kind of war on women uh, 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 feminist argument about the nature of their ability to redistribute uh, to various interest groups the things that they need, in part to cover up for the fact that their agenda under both I would argue President Obama and likely uh, under Hillary Clinton has been a kind of soft pro-Wall Street corporatism that really has not uh, engaged in the kind of dramatic reforms that people who support Bernie Sanders and support his much more progressive vision of, of how things should work believe it ought to uh, believe it ought to be. It is interesting to me how much you know Hillary Clinton had to cater to those groups during the course of this primary in order to compromise a Bernie, and you saw the frustrations among a lot of the true believers in their convention in Philly. But I think that her view is she can hold on to all of those people just by checking the box on a number of other cultural issues where she will use the same old playbook against Donald Trump and Mike Pence as if Trump was some kind of Rick Santorum conservative, uh, when in reality, we all know that he's someone who's been all over the map on those issues. To her credit, perhaps, though, that those voters 
uh, her voters mm -hmm. and voters who would have otherwise supported Bernie Sanders, maybe that's a perfectly fair thing to do. Mm -hmm. It really is. And I think that there's an understanding uh, now on the part of some of the smarter folks on the right that the real danger they face is a democratic coalition that starts to look a lot more like the Tories in Britain, where you have kind of a soft pro-corporate, uh, pro-chamber of commerce agenda, uh, uh, fiscal approach, and then a slew of uh, social liberal issues, not in the sense of more freedom for people, but in more goods for people, more redistribution. Distribution. And I think that the danger of that kind of coalition is we've seen that before how it plays out in Europe. The coalition of the right becomes more nationalist, more populist, more anti immigrant, and it also becomes less capable of mounting a national campaign. It, it's been interesting to me to watch the uh, Bernie Sanders uh, campaign that stressed so hard this issue of judgment on one question, which was the vote to authorize the use of force in Iraq. Donald Trump has also tried to grab on to uh, opposition with limited success to mm -hmm. say that he opposed the war beforehand, although there's not really any evidence to support that. And now uh, Gary Johnson, for, for his part, a former Republican governor in a, in a, in a blue state or purple state, uh, has, has, is trying mightily mm -hmm. to get those anti-war people on his side as well. Rand Paul, of course, did not gain as much traction as he uh, would have liked to on a broadly broad skepticism about war. But where does that that war question uh, come down now I think and, 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 and in the future? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what happens on the foreign policy side just determine, is determined by how able Gary Johnson is to get his message across. Uh, he's going to have opportunities. He's had opportunities recently on CNN. He'll have opportunities in the future over the course of this campaign. There's certainly much more openness to him this time around than there has been for a libertarian candidate in a very, very long time. And I think that he will be able to make some inroads. The real question is whether he's able to get up on that debate stage. Because if he is, I think that you'll see a lot of Americans, particularly those who liked Bernie Sanders, find that they have a lot more in common with him on foreign policy. And they might view him, frankly, as a more steady hand than uh, Donald Trump, who, while he can go in one direction on saying he opposed the war in Iraq is also, you know, someone who seems to be a lot more willing to consider using nuclear weapons. So the the truth is I think there's going to be a play here made for a lot of those Sanders voters, but in order for them to really make the decision to cross over and vote for a libertarian or vote for a, vote for a Republican, you're going to have to convince them uh, that you are not going to be unacceptable on a host of other issues as well. And that's the real question that's open at this stage and that we'll find out over the course of the coming months. I just think that when you look back at this election, it's going to be historic for a lot of reasons. And I think the, the biggest question that we won't know the answer to probably for a while probably until the midterms, is whether this represents a political realignment or whether it is a black swan event, whether Donald Trump and the faction that supported him is one that is a one-time-around type of thing where the the fever breaks and, and people uh, reassess what they want in candidates, or whether this is the type of realignment that could lead to a new reorientation of the parties, the major parties as it relates to each other. But how has the Democratic Party shifted? I mean, it, it seems that it has shifted more uh, to the left, for lack of a, mm -hmm. of a better term, but it I think it seems like the playbook has not really has not all been altered. The, the playbook hasn't been altered, but I think that it is true that the 
the social and domestic policy of the Democratic Party has shifted left. But I think Hillary Clinton is also more hawkish. She's more willing to consider kind of intervention in, in a lot of different ways. And I think that that's something that is a shift that could lead to perhaps some neoconservative flowback into the Democratic coalition. We've certainly seen that already in terms of the endorsements from former Bush officials and former Republican advisors on foreign policy. I think we're going to continue to see that. Ben Dominich is publisher of The Federalist. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.